Hello and welcome to the JPRAS Journal Club in association with Plasta and Icoplast. Join us monthly to hear from the authors themselves about their article in the latest issue of JPRAS with critical appraisal and discussion from plastic surgery trainees and experts from around the world. Thank you for listening and we hope you enjoy this month's episode. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for this month's episode of the JPRAS Journal Club. I'm your host, Demetrius Rhesus, and I'm a plastic surgery registrar working in London and president of our UK Plastic Surgery Trainees Association called Plasta. Today we'll be reviewing and discussing a new UK guideline on BIA ALCL recently published in JPRAS. The article itself is entitled UK Guidelines on the Diagnosis and Treatment of Breast Implant Associated Anaplastic Large Cell Lymphoma, BIA ALCL, on behalf of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MHRA, Plastic Reconstructive and Aesthetic Surgery Expert Advisory Group, PRASEG. It is written by a large group of eminent authors and we're honored to be joined by many of them today. The first author is Mr. Philip Turton. He is a consultant oncoplastic and reconstructive and cosmetic breast surgeon working at St. James's Hospital in Leeds. He's also the regional representative for oncoplastic breast surgery training and serves on the council for the Association of Breast Surgery. Thank you very much for joining us, Mr. Turton. And we're also joined by Dr. Dima El-Shikawi. She's a consultant haematologist working at the Royal Marsden Hospital in London. She specializes in the management of lymphoma and chronic lymphoid malignancies. Thank you for joining us, Dr. El-Shikawi. And next, we're also joined by Professor Ian Lyburn. He is a consultant radiologist at Gloucestershire Hospital's NHS Foundation Trust. And he's also a professor of medical imaging at Cobalt Health Medical Charity in Cheltenham, specializing in functional imaging for oncology. Thank you for joining us, Professor Lyburn. Pleasure to be here. And next, we're joined by Professor Suzanne Turner. She's a professor in cellular and molecular tumor biology and the Division of Cellular and Molecular Pathology at the University of Cambridge, as well as the Central European Institute of Technology in the Czech Republic. She chairs the European Intergroup of Childhood Non-Hodgkin Lymphoma and is also a member of the EU's Shear Working Group on the Safety of Breast Implants in Relation to BIA ALCL. Thank you for joining us, Professor Turner. Next, we're joined by Ms. Fiona McNeil, who's a consultant breast surgeon working at the Royal Marsden Hospital, also specializing in oncoplastic and breast reconstruction. She's the past president of the Association of Breast Surgery. Thank you for joining us, Ms. McNeil. Pleasure. Thank you very much. Next, we're joined by Dr. Kathy Burton, who's a consultant hematologist, also at St. James's University Hospital in Leeds, specializing in lymphoma and diagnostics. She's the clinical director of the Oncology Clinical Services Unit and a trustee of the Lymphoma Action Charity. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Burton. Thank you. Good evening. Also on the author list, we're joined by the senior author, Mr. Nigel Mercer. He's the chair of PRASEG at the MHRA. He is a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon working at Bristol Plastic Surgery, and he's also the past president of both BAPRAS and BARPS and the FSSA, which is the Faculty of Surgical Specialty Associations. Thank you very much for bringing us all together and for joining us today, Mr. Mercer. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. And as always, we're joined by Professor Andrew Hart. He's the editor-in-chief of JPRAS and a consultant plastic and reconstructive surgeon working in the Cannesburn Plastic Surgery Unit in Glasgow, Scotland. Thanks for joining us, Andy. Thanks, Timmy. And as always, we're joined by Dr. Hine Rakhorst. He's a specialist plastic and reconstructive surgeon working in the Medish Spectrum Hospital in the Netherlands, and he's also a founding board member of Icoplast and Icobra. And also relevant today, he's a founder of the Dutch Consortium for BIA ALCL, and also an external expert on the EU Shear Committee for BIA ALCL. 
Thanks as always, Hine. Thank you, Demi, and impressed with uh, the faculty today. Really looking forward. And last but not least, we're joined by Mr. Amit Thakur, who will present the article today and the guidelines. Amit is a plastic surgery registrar in London, currently working in the St. Andrew's Centre for Burns and Plastic Surgery in Chelmsford. Thank you very much for joining us, Amit, and I'll hand over to you to present the guidelines. Thank you for the introduction, Demi. For all of those who just joined us, the paper is entitled UK Guidelines on the Diagnosis and Treatment of Breast Implant-Associated Anaplastic Large Cell Lymphoma on behalf of the Medicines and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, Plastic Reconstructive and Aesthetic Surgery Expert Advisory Group. As of April 2020, 68 women with textured implants have been affected in the UK, with approximately 800 cases reported worldwide, and an absolute risk ranging from roughly 1 in 354 to 1 in 37,000. Sadly, at least 33 deaths have also been reported. These guidelines aim to build on the existing United States National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines and the UK pathology guidelines to better reflect the unique differences in UK practice, where implant surgery is almost equally divided between the NHS and the private sectors. The vast majority of implant-based reconstruction is performed in the NHS, while almost all of cosmetic implant surgery is performed privately. In the UK, routine radiological surveillance of implant health in asymptomatic patients is not recommended. Imaging of symptomatic patients tend to be symptom-driven following patient or surgeon concerns. The authors recognize the resulting financial impact on patients in the independent sector in the absence of private medical insurance and recommend a referral to the local NHS symptomatic breast clinic in eligible patients. The IALCL should be considered in any cases where implants have been in situ for over 12 months in patients presenting most commonly with a large periprosthetic effusion, presenting as a large breast swelling or asymmetry, but also less commonly with a palpable mass, lymphadenopathy, breast skin changes, or B symptoms such as night sweats, weight loss, or fevers. Assessment should be based on a detailed medical history, followed by the principle of triple assessment with a clinical examination, imaging, and a biopsy, and all confirmed or suspicious cases managed in an MDT setting. The authors propose a very comprehensive diagnostic algorithm based on clinical presentation. Seromas, or capsule-related masses, should be investigated with ultrasound of the breast and axilla, as well as a mammogram in patients over the age of 40. MR imaging should be undertaken in cases of uncertain diagnosis or inconclusive ultrasound. Masses found should be core biopsied and seromas aspirated, ensuring that all of the periprosthetic fluid and certainly at least 50 mLs is taken. We do know that the first aspirate yields the most accurate diagnosis and subsequent ones increase the chance of a false negative result due to a dilutional effect. The main sample should be sent as three separate specimens for hematological malignancy diagnostic service, microbiology, but also cytology, with as much as possible of the sample sent to cytology. The assessment is then performed in two stages. Firstly, a primary morphological assessment for the presence of neoplastic cells is undertaken, followed by a secondary assessment by immunohistochemistry if BALCL is suspected morphologically. Pleomorphic lymphocytes are characteristically always anaplastic lymphoma kinase, or ALK negative, and strongly positive for CD30. Pathological skin lesions should be biopsied 
while lymphadenopathy or lymphoma B symptoms investigated with PET-CT, ideally prior to surgical intervention, to reduce the risk of post-surgical inflammatory changes. If clinical suspicion persists following an indeterminate diagnosis, the authors recommend the following options, a referral to a specialist center for MDT discussion, repeat imaging with or without aspiration, diagnostic on-block total capsulectomy or close monitoring after a careful evaluation and shared decision-making with the patient. All confirmed cases should be managed in an MDT setting at a tertiary cancer center recorded in the breast and cosmetic implant registry and reported to the MHRA. Preoperatively, routine blood tests, including an FBC, USINES, LFTs, LDH, and virology, as well as a PET-CT and a bone marrow biopsy in cases of lymph node involvement are recommended. Surgery through a total on-block capsulectomy remains the primary treatment for nearly all patients with BIA-LCL except the minority who will present with locally advanced or metastatic disease and who will require initial systemic therapy. Surgery to achieve complete local control is potentially curative and is crucial in reducing stage progression, future recurrence, or improving overall survival. Contralateral on-block capsulectomy and exploitation should be considered as BAALCL can be contralateral in 2 to 4% of cases. Any decision for subsequent reconstruction should be delayed until at least six months after repeat PET-CT or MRI. Once explanted, the capsules should be incised inferiorly to drain all the periprosthetic fluid to be sent to cytology. The capsule should then be opened through an inferior clamshell capsulotomy and oriented with sutures. The implant should be photographed, labeled, and stored until collection by the manufacturer, and details such as the manufacturer's name, implant style and lot numbers must be recorded in the operation note. The patient is then staged postoperatively using the AJCC TNM staging system as advocated by Mark Clements. In stage one, which affects the majority of patients and where disease is localized only to the capsule, no further treatment is required. In stages two to four, where disease has progressed past the capsule, adjuvant systemic treatment is advocated. Currently, Shock chemotherapy is most commonly used as upfront treatment for BIA-LCL, while brentuximab as a single agent is licensed for refractory or relapsed ALCL. Routine radiation therapy is not recommended following complete histological clearance of T1 and T2 tumors and should only be considered in cases of incomplete capsulectomy or chest wall invasion. Once treatment is deemed to be complete, Surveillance through a clinical review every three to six months for a minimum of two years is recommended. To conclude, this paper represents a truly multidisciplinary effort at streamlining the diagnosis and management of this rare but very important complication of breast implants through a systematic approach. The authors highlight the importance of promoting education of both patients and clinicians due to the excellent prognosis if this condition is detected early and managed suitably in a tertiary referral center via multidisciplinary approach. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Ahmed. That was a great summary of the guidelines, um, really clearly presented and really useful for everyone listening. Thank you very much for that. Just before I hand over to Hine, I might just ask you one question. You mentioned it right at the start of your presentation that there's US guidelines as well. And did you notice when you're reading any differences between these new UK guidelines and those in the US? 
Yes, yeah, absolutely. I think these current guidelines really do expand on the American ones by Mark Clemens and reflect the different landscape in how breast implant surgery is performed here in the UK, particularly with identifying and encouraging new pathways to refer eligible patients privately without medical insurance to the NHS. Um, it also details several aspects of the perioperative management of these patients, particularly that of indeterminate cases, but also in confirmed cases as well, such as the recommended volumes of periprosthetic fluid sampling for the capsule, but also the actual management of the capsule itself and its orientation following excision. So it certainly does add a lot more information to what we already know. I completely agree. And that's something we can discuss, I think, in our panel discussion now. So thank you again, Amit. And I'll hand over to Hine to ask a few questions for our authors. Yeah, thank you, Damien. I would really like to congratulate the UK on, on a magnificent job you did with this uh, guideline. And I would really like to congratulate you, especially on the multidisciplinary aspect of the author group. And starting with the multidisciplinarity, from where I work, there's a huge awareness of this disease in especially the Plastic Surgery Society and in different other regions, everybody is involved. How is that in, in the UK at the moment? How is the awareness in the hematology departments, in pathology and in the radiology departments? Maybe uh, Professor Turner, you can start. I'm not a clinician, so I don't really interact with that much with all the people on the clinical side of things. And maybe somebody else is better at saying how things are, are seen clinically. But I guess awareness is increasing considerably as more places are diagnosed. And, and I guess particularly as more women come forward thinking that they have this condition. And in many cases, I guess it's them that raise the awareness with the clinician when they come with armed with all their Google searches of what they found out. So I think awareness has increased considerably, but I would defer to my co-authors on how it is in the hematology clinics. Professor Burton, how is it in hematology? So I think following on from what Suzanne has just said, we are very aware now of this diagnosis. I suppose I have dual roles, really, because I work within a diagnostic service. So therefore, if we receive, for example, some breast aspirate fluid or a solid mass from breast lump, you know, that would be one of the things that we'd be considering in terms of the panels that we do. But also clinically, we are aware of this is much more likely as a haematologist that we would see this referred for a breast surgeon rather than primarily presenting to the haematologist. But I think it is something that within haematology, we are much more aware of. And when people first presented with this, there was a lot of discussion about how these patients are best managed. I think now there is really agreement, you know, nationally and internationally in terms of managing these patients. So I think in big centres like ourselves, you know, London will be the same, in Leeds, we, you know, we don't see a lot of these patients, but we have got experience with these patients, both with patients presenting with just localised disease and not requiring any treatment, but actually to those patients who have required chemotherapy and then have relapsed. I think we are acquiring information. And so I think in big centres, we're very aware of this, but obviously one of the important things of writing these guidelines lines was to highlight this to more district hospitals and where their patient numbers are less and don't so commonly see this disorder. 
Professor Lagren, how is that in, in radiology departments? In, in the Netherlands where I'm at, radiologists get, get flushed away with all the requests by plastic surgeons and other clinicians on seroma. And how is the awareness to make it practical? It's a very good question. I think it varies from different parts of the country. So that, as I mentioned earlier, the bigger centres are more aware of it, but smaller places aren't. Another problem is primary care. Also, the referrers themselves aren't necessarily aware of it. So the primary care doctor isn't necessarily aware of it. And that's another area we want to try and expand the education element into it. But it is being more widely thought about. You've alluded to it. The fact that this is a multidisciplinary group has helped you know, doing radiology, pathology, hematology, plastic surgery, breast surgery, that approach has really worked quite well. And I have to commend your group too, actually, for having this kind of webinar. It's great. I think maybe other groups should be doing the same thing. Professor McNeil, is that, uh, how is that in your clinic and your, with your colleagues? Is it widely spread and aware? Well, I work in a, a large centre, so there's a lot of awareness but I am concerned that generally there may not be a lot of awareness. So I, I can't really give you an, an opinion on that because I'm seeing a very skewed population who choose to come and see me because they know about ALCL. So Philip may have a better sense of what's happening countrywide than I do. OK. Well, Philip, going over to you. So, I mean, if we look at... The national meetings that registrars attend, both with the ABS and BAPRIS, ALCL has been a topic at those meetings for uh, you know good three to four years now. You don't get a single meeting where there aren't abstracts and presentations. All of the trainees that are coming through Leeds are aware of the condition, and we do a lot of education to build on that. I've got a meeting with our regional trainees in June, where we'll be going into more detail with the current guidelines, for example. So I think we've got to constantly build on it because this is such an uncommon condition. You're not going to get these trainees coming across it, but they will be involved in the management of patients who are presenting with chronic seromas or who simply have concern about the condition. So they all need to be aware. And what is the strategy to provide content for the discussion with patients in, in your specialty? So in, in breast surgery, in our clinics in Leeds, we've got printed patient information sheets. So we're using these for any consultation where we're seeing a patient who happens to have an implant, even if they're not there to see you because of a concern about breast implant lymphoma, they've come with breast pain and we spot they've got an implant. We check that they're aware of breast implant lymphoma. I'm glad to say that a lot of them are, but we do still surprisingly see a few who aren't. But we then explain a little bit more about BILCL, explain the relationship between the textured implant, possibly one that they will have. At the same time, we try to reassure them that this is an uncommon malignancy, but we discuss the clear clinical signs that they should report in the future if there is a concern. So they go home with that information sheet and we try to always reinforce that in the letter to the GP. So it's educating primary care at the same time. Wonderful. Professor Lyburn, one of the first signs is seroma, and seroma is, of course, uh, can be a symptom of many things, but uh, that's usually the start. So why don't we just screen for seroma with all the women with breast implants? What, what was the line of thought, and what would be your thought uh, to answer that question? 
Uh, it's a good question. It's a difficult question. Thank you. Um, you're right. As again, as Phillips mentioned, it's such an unusual condition. We've got to be careful. We don't kind of overkill. That makes sense and over investigate. So I think that sort of pragmatic view is is how concerned the conditions are with it as well. So I'm what I'm really saying is we've got to be careful. We don't give everybody with a seroma this condition. And it's a matter of I think monitoring it to start with, and then if you're very suspicious. So what I'm saying is it's unusual for them to attend the first time with that diagnosis. You might get them back. So I think a, a good thing to do is clinically review them with the ultrasound as well. After an interval, and if you're still suspicious, then go down this route rather than, as it were, calling the cavalry too early. I think that's one approach. Yes. Uh, Professor Turner, if there's a negative uh, seroma, can there be any technical things that we don't consider when we take out the specimen? Should we? I remember in my laboratory days that I always had to spin the, the, the vials prior to sampling. How, how big is the effect of a negative result based on, on just uh, techniques from dealing with the specimen? Yeah, so it's can be quite a tricky one to diagnose in many ways in, in that there have been cases where seromas have been taken, uh, the fluid's been taken and analysed and has been shown to be negative, yet when the capsule has been removed, there's been involvement of the capsule. So very often these tumour cells appear in the capsule, but not necessarily very obvious in, in the seroma. So it, it can be tricky to diagnose, and part of the guidelines is to provide at least 50 ml of seroma fluid. And I think for most women where there more likely is a chance that there is this, this uh, form of lymphoma, they will have a larger seroma anyway, and so you'll be able to drain off that amount of fluid. But at the same time, you know, there are some women who are diagnosed based on much smaller volumes of, of seroma. Certainly the seromas we've had in our lab have been 98% um, CD30 positive tumor cells. So they tend to be sort of full of these tumor cells. But there are these cases where a negative seroma doesn't necessarily mean a negative diagnosis. So it's tricky. Um, but I think if there's a, re a recurrent seroma and... Oftentimes, I think what happens is the seroma, it's drained off and then it comes back and it keeps coming back. And in those situations, when it's decided to have implant removal and capsulectomy at the same time, the capsule should always be checked on removal to make sure whether there were any cells there and whether those cells have breached the capsule as well into the breast parenchyma, which of course is exceptionally rare um, because most of these cases are picked up at the earliest stages when they are a seroma, but they do have the capacity to, in some cases, breach the capsule, move into the breast parenchyma, the main breast tissue. Uh, and of course, then you have a, a more aggressive disease to deal with. Yes, thank you. Uh, Professor Al-Sharkawi, can we say that the sooner we detect it, the better the, the prognosis that goes for many cancers, of course, but what can you tell us about prognosis and how can we influence this? So you've kind of answered the question yourself. That <laughs> yeah, yes, sorry. <laughs> the, no, no, it's a very good. It made my life easier. Um, yes, essentially, the earlier we diagnose it, the better. I mean, we want to avoid these patients coming to us to have chemotherapy or need radiotherapy. So ideally, if we can get it at the early stage, surgical management is curative, and that's what we hope for. Wonderful. Uh, Professor Thurton, what do you think the role is of the UK Breast Implant Registry in, in providing answers and, and, and moving us forward? 
Well, the registry is really still in its infancy, as as you um, might be aware. It's a, a digital registry that became compulsory a couple of years ago. So everybody who's having implants in or indeed having renewal of implants or having their implants out should be documented on that registry. So I think this is something that will provide more information in 10 years' time, but we don't expect there to be a huge wealth of information coming from it in the next few years. I'd say the, the main thing we need to focus on in the next few years is making sure that all of the details are being entered. We need to also audit what's being entered and make sure that it can be used in the future for data analysis, rather in the same way as you have done. And what is the Breast Surgeons Association? Do you support the registry or is it compulsory for breast surgeons as well as plastic surgeons? Or how do you, how do you envision moving, reaching those targets of 100% capture rate in the UK? So yes, it is a 100% compulsory registry for NHS patients. In the private sector, it is strongly encouraged. And certainly in the major centres, everybody's being entered. I know in our Nuffield and Spire hospitals, for example, they are entered in every single case and that is audited. There are possibly some smaller private clinics where data is not being captured and that does show up in the audits. The only way that could be enforced, I suppose, is, is through legislation. And I, I would wholly support that. All of the ABS and BAPRAS and BARPS members are 100% committed to it, though. That's really, really magnificent. Professor Mercer, the guideline says we have to postpone placing new implants uh, at least, I, I believe it was six months after the removal of an implant. Some of the patients are really keen on having implants really early. So if you were to replace implants, would you have any thoughts on what type of implants to use, to recommend? Um, as, a, as a group, we're stressing that no implant is safe. And I think we all agree that. We've seen cases of BALCL with uh, every type of implant that's uh, on sale in the United Kingdom. And there have been cases of BILCL associated with smooth implants, but not specifically within the breast. There is one case in the FDA which there is, FDA has had reported, which there is some discussion about. But I think the important thing, first of all, is from the patient's point of view, is to, is to make sure that we have eradicated the disease and, and then to make sure that the patient is making the right decision based with all the information that we have to date, and that's going to change, obviously, with the information being accumulated, on whether or not they do go down the route of having uh, another implant. And obviously, we have two patient populations. We have the aesthetic patient, we have the reconstructive patient, and the amount of information that individual is going to need is going to be quite enormous. They should not be rushed into making a decision. They may regret three, four, six months down the line. And it's one of those areas where I think we all feel that your health is much more important than your cosmesis. We don't want to make the life, uh, the life worse for our oncology colleagues by doing something that potentially would be masking disease or preventing that patient having a, having a cure for a disease which is by and large curable at an early stage. So what is the role of the textured implant in the UK today? The recommendation is that patients need to be given all the information to be able to make a choice. I mean, if you look at it, hormone replacement therapy has a greater risk of producing a cancer in a, in a female patient than does a textured breast implant. We don't ban HRT 
And so it's really important not to have a knee-jerk reaction here, but to say to the patient, these are the risks, these are the benefits, and that the patient has got to make the choice. And medicine in the UK has moved away from paternalism and, you know, grey-haired gentlemen like me telling a patient what <laughs> should have done. I think it's, again, an area where patients have got to think extremely carefully about what they do and be told what the various pros and cons are. And some of the implants which are on the market now have not been on the market really long enough to actually develop cases. So we can't say have this one because there have been no cases with it because we don't know if they're going to develop in the future. And surveillance of these patients is absolutely essential. They should never be discharged and we should never destroy their, their medical notes. We must keep a, a watchful eye on a patient with a breast implant in now for as long as that patient and the implant are together. A final question for Professor Turner. Suzanne, you're at the forefront of research on BIA-LCL, one of our pioneers. Are there certain subgroups of women that may be more susceptible to developing the disease? That's a really good question, Hine. And it's um, difficult at the moment to say that because of the cases that we have seen, I mean, there's maybe getting up to a thousand cases worldwide now. Genetic studies of those cases and of the background germline, if you like, genetics of those patients is hampered by a small quantity of, of patients. So uh, we don't really know. There's been one study, a Dutch study, as you know, from Daphne de Jong's group, which showed a higher percentage of BRCA mutation carriers. But then, of course, the BRCA mutation carrier group are the group that are likely to have reconstruction with breast implants. So that's maybe not too surprising. So whether or not having a BRCA mutation predisposes you to breast implant ALCL as well as breast cancer is, is something that we don't know. But other than that, there's no information out there as to what might predispose. There, there's been another study showing that there is one certain HLA haplotype, which is enriched for within the breast implant ALCL patient population. But the significance of that, again, is, is completely unknown. And again, the study was done on a handful of cases. So it's difficult to put any real significance to those data. So we don't know is, is the short answer. Yes. Well, thank you, Suzanne. And, and also to back up your statement, we published that, that BRCA paper in, uh, in blood, but it was really no evidence, but it was uh, really, uh, we noticed it. And therefore we thought it was worth mentioning. And we really asked the world to collaborate like you are doing, Suzanne and the whole group today to find answers, especially for these kind of questions. I'll leave it to that uh, with this very uh, lively discussion today, uh, uh, this for, for now, and uh, go back to our, our host, Dimi. Thanks, Dimi. Thank you very much, Hine. Yeah, it's been a fascinating discussion and great to hear everyone's perspectives and really the depth of information that's becoming available for influencing our practice as well. I'd like to hand over to Prof Hart now to ask a few more questions of our authors. Thank you, Andy. Thanks, Dimi. Difficult to follow on from such a comprehensive discussion. Thanks, Annie. That's great. So if I could ask some slightly perhaps more trainee-related or off-tangent questions. Um, Suzanne, could I just follow on from that last discussion about whether there may be women who are more prone to this? Is there any evidence of any viral associations as you find in other lymphoma? No, no, so, so there aren't. So with ALCL, which of course, a systemic ALCL, there are no viral associations either. Um, there's no association. There have been some very, very rare 
beast cell lymphomas associated with breast implants that are EBV positive. And again, that's a handful of cases. I think there's been about five or six reported in the literature. Uh, so, so those do exist. But again, it's likely a very different mechanism of pathogenesis for the breast implant ALCL. It's also maybe nice to note that the ALCL can also be in a breast without a breast implant. So it's not a, an implant. Uh, well, via ALCL is an implant-specific thing, but ALCL can be in the breast as well. Yeah, it's, it's a very difficult distinction sometimes. And I know of cases where there are women who have ALCL and happen to have breast implants, and the ALCL is perhaps in the, the auxiliary lymph nodes, and, and we don't know for certain if this is anything to do with the breast implants or they just happen to have systemic ALCL, nodal ALCL, and they happen to have breast implants. Uh, again, the, the same paper that came from, from the Dutch group that, that Hini was part of showed that the breast implant ALCLs have a loss of chromosome 20Q, a very specific chromosomal loss that we don't see systemic out-connective ALCL. So that could be one way in the future of distinguishing between the two diagnostically. But but it is it is tricky sometimes, I think, to know with certainty that this is a breast implant ALCL, although with systemic ALCLs, you don't get the seroma. So there, there are differences which, which are possible to distinguish them easier. There's just something to add on that, though, pragmatically from a treatment perspective. Once you've got nodal ALCL, partly because of the rarity, we treat them the same, whether it's originally a breast implant associated or a systemic ALCL unrelated to the breast implant. Yeah. Whether that's the right thing to do, whether they will, the outcomes will be the same, difficult to know because the numbers are so small and it's a bit yeah. of extrapolation from our knowledge of treatment from the systemic ALCL. Yeah. And I think that the difficulty clinically there is, do we remove the implants? Because if it's not breast implant related, you're doing an unnecessary surgery. Uh, if it's systemic ALCL, there's no indication, there's no reason to remove the implant. So, so I think that's where it becomes very clinically a, a tricky decision to make. We had one case where we had a, a patient with an axillary node which, that had ALCL, and then we looked at her notes, and she had a seroma with an implant. The implant was removed due to infection, but it, later on during the revision of the pathology of the capsula, there was an ALCL. Yeah. So these, these are sort of the buried, more or less, or hidden cases as well that clinicians could be aware of, especially hematologists, I suppose, to ask for, have you had an implant? And from the noodle point of view, uh, partly an exam answer for the trainees. So if I understand correctly, you're recommending that if there are large palpable or PET positive nodes, there's a nodal biopsy performed, but no clearance. And if there's no palpable or hotspot disease, the axilla is left intact. Is that correct? So if there are palpable nodes, it's important to take a biopsy from a diagnostic perspective. There are reports but, of reactive... But not to do clearance of any sort. So we wouldn't routinely for lymphoma yeah. do that. So, But it is important and not just assume they're involved. There are reports of patients with enlarged auxiliary nodes that may be a reactive thing rather than actually truly involved by the lymphoma. So diagnostically, yes. Great, thank you. And uh, I'm not sure if it would be for Dima or Suzanne, but um, the cases where you, obviously, there's a, a TNM grading, so there's variable aggressiveness. Do you think that 
progression to greater T stage or N stage is primarily uh, related to duration, or are there more aggressive subtypes of phenotype? No, it doesn't seem to be related to to the length of time that the tumor's been there. You can there are cases of some very aggressive ones. I know of at least one case in the states at the moment where the patient is about to enter hospice care because she has failed shock, she has failed brentuximab, and, and essentially we've run out of options. So it, it can become a, a very aggressive tumor. And you know whether this is a disease which sits on a spectrum or whether these are distinct subtypes, again, that's something which is up for debate. So, you know, is, is the more aggressive nodal or, or parenchyma involved, capsule, you know, the, the disease that passes through the capsule, is that different from the seroma-only form, which you might consider more of a, a lymphoproliferation, for want of a better term? You know, that, that's, that's again, a, a matter of debate, but there are certainly some very aggressive cases and, again, some much more indolent cases. So it's, a, it's like a, many other different lymphomas is that there, there can be quite a spectrum of presentation there. I don't know, Dima, do you want to add anything to that? No, you've said exactly what I would say. Thank you. Again, I'm not really sure who's best placed to answer. Maybe Philip is lead author. Um, do you think the incidence will now rise or just the prevalence or do you think this is related to primarily implant types that are disappearing? Yeah that's a, a really interesting question. We, we obviously saw an uptick over the last maybe six or seven years. We saw an uptick after the first maybe two to three years that this became widely reported and certainly since the WHO inclusion of its classification as a, a, another type of T-cell lymphoma. But since then, quite interestingly, I think the, um, the number of cases coming forward each year has plateaued. So we maybe see between 10 and 15 cases per year, and I've not seen a um, rise in that, actually. Anybody else want to comment? It'll be interesting to see what impact COVID has had on people coming forward and people then having investigations. The presumption there'll be some, some that disease maybe, lurking there maybe, will present late. Yeah, that will present yeah. late because people will want to avoid coming in or primary care, um, not seeing yeah. patients directly. Okay, great. The next question I had really was whether you feel there, which we've partly covered, but as a, as a group, do you think there are any patients who should be specifically refused implantation because of any LCL risk? I'll turn the question around a little bit, Andy. I think that if the patient is suitable for alternative reconstructive options, I think you have to ensure that they have been, all of those alternative options have been adequately explored with them and that implant reconstruction is not just an automatic default position. So I'm not quite answering your question. I'm not saying that there's a group that should not be offered implants, but all too often we're seeing patients who've not had all of their options explored with them. And I'm referring to autologous options and in particular free flaps. So I think it's beholden on to breast surgeons who are often the ones who are seeing the reconstructive patients to ensure that they've had a full discussion with the patients and explored suitability for Dieppe flap reconstruction. Thanks. Um, which would 
lead on to one of the other questions I had. Because, you know, by implication there, you're saying that patients should come through a, a pathway that has access to all the different specialty options. In the guidance, very appropriately described that patients with BIA ALCL should be managed through an MDT. What's the panel's feeling about the necessary quorum for an ALCL MDT? Yes, I'm very happy to answer that, Andy. Um, I think we, you know, we have to be careful, otherwise we might get a rash of MDT-itis. I, I think when we say it should be managed by an MDT, it can be a virtual MDT, it doesn't have to be a physical MDT, but it's ensuring that you have access to the expertise in terms of diagnosis, in terms of lymphoma management. And absolutely, everybody though should have access to that, breast surgeons and plastic surgeons. Many of these patients tend to come through the breast diagnostic clinics, and so that does tend to be the pathway. But I don't think anybody should feel excluded from an MDT if they wish to join an MDT. But, but it's absolutely about ensuring that patients have access to the relevant expertise. Because unfortunately, I've dealt with a couple of patients where the local surgeon has felt that they're more than capable of doing a capsulectomy without really understanding that it's not a slur on their surgical expertise. It's about the whole patient management and they've got to see beyond their surgical expertise. I suppose I was more wondering whether you feel the patients should be referred into a, you know, the existing breast MDT, which would have breast oncology, radiology, breast surgery and so on, or whether there should be specific MDT set up with ALCL patients in mind to bring in lymphoma expertise? Yes, we've discussed, isn't it, in Prasiag as to whether we could even as a group of experts offer MDT advice for complex cases because of course the straightforward ones are straightforward ones and it's always the more difficult ones the ones with the odd CD30 cell the chronic seromas you're just never quite sure and you're worried about committing or over committing a patient to fairly radical surgery with major implications but as they come through the diagnostic breast clinics they often go to the breast MDT first but RMH they also go to the lymphoma MDT and a member of the breast team comes to the lymphoma MDT so they're discussed in two separate MDTs and Dima you may want to uh, enrich that discussion. Yeah no I was going to echo what you say actually Fiona that I think the the numbers are too infrequent to have a regular formal MDT between us all but both from a diagnostic perspective and then from a management perspective, it is useful to be able to tap into the existing MDTs. And, and as Fiona said, that if there are particularly complex cases, having the group like the Presiag or, or people with an interest uh, all kind of in virtual communication as we all are these days can also be helpful for outside opinions as well. Anybody else want to comment on that? Philip, you look like you're itching to speak, or Nigel? Yeah. <laughs> no, we've, we've got the same setup in Leeds as Fiona's 
outlined. So they, they do come through the breast MDT and we involve the hematology MDT, which actually sits in the adjacent room to us. So it's very handy. I think the essential thing is you must have MDT discussion because that hopefully will get away from people trying to heroically manage it themselves in a district hospital, even if they've got the, the technical skills. There's a lot more to it. You know, this is a multidisciplinary approach to get this right. And you, you've only got one opportunity to get it right. And that really is the first time. Thank you. Nigel? We've been discussing whether or not there should be centres for treatment of BILCL since it still remains an uncommon disease in the United Kingdom. And we have seen from the USA where some patients were treated not brilliantly to begin with and went on to quite advanced disease. And we feel very strongly we need to avoid that. And we are having ongoing discussions about whether or not having a tertiary referral centre maybe one in the south, one in the north, maybe one in Scotland would be appropriate for the management of these, these patients. It doesn't necessarily mean they have to be looked after physically in those centres, but uh, it's very important that patients who have this get the right treatment. And that's an ongoing discussion because those centres will need to have co-located expert breast surgery, reconstructive surgery, particularly, there's, for example, if there's chest wall uh, involvement, oncology, radiology, hemoncology as well. And there aren't that many centres that can fulfil all the criteria that we would be recommending. And there will probably be a process in the next few months or so where we're asking for, asking effectively for bids for centres who may wish to, to take on that higher level work. But I think having the experts on Prasiac who really are up to date with everything that's going on in it as a, a, a national body who can provide advice. I think it is, uh, it's something which we're all, we're all smiling upon very great, really very well and would like to take that on. Thank you. And if I could stick with you and ask a question which may be unfair and maybe better dealt with um, offline or in, or in a, a separate, separate publication which we could arrange in JPRAS. Do you think there's a place for stating a minimum consent information pack for patients having reconstructive or cosmetic breast augmentation? As a group, we have been looking at, so first of all, there's a patient information booklet, which is in press at the moment, which has been written by the three associations about BILCL as it applies to both reconstruction and aesthetic surgery. And certainly, I think medically legally, if patients who undergo any form of implant-based reconstruction, probably anywhere in the body, are not warned of the risks of BILCL, and then there is a problem, uh, the patient develops BILCL later, then I think they would find it extremely hard to stand up in court or in front of the General Medical Council and win. I think because all the associations are saying it is recommended that patients be warned, not doing so would be seen to the legal term is falling below the standard required of the competent surgeon providing the service and that would apply both by the GMC and the courts so for those trainees coming through who are going to be doing this work and also any other consultants doing it really do have to warn your patients. And do you think there's a minimum amount of information that warning should contain or just the, the standard approach that we work to with all conditions? Well, the, the world changed in 2015 with Nadine Montgomery's case in the United Kingdom. And the amount of information given to the patient is the amount of information the patient requires, not the amount of information that the surgeon thinks is appropriate for the patient. And the 
it is mandatory, legally mandatory now, that the surgeon finds out what the patient views as material risks. Now, if someone's 21 and coming in for a cosmetic breast augmentation, their view of mandatory risks, a bit like driving skills, will be very different from someone who is 45 and has had various prangs in their car. It's a very different way of looking at risk. And so there may be conversations where the surgeon will say, well, they, you know, they wouldn't listen to it anyway. The patient, if there's a risk of a cancer, really does have to be told that there's a risk of a cancer associated with any any treatment, any procedure, any implant we put in. Thank you. And again, it's an awkward question for anyone on the panel, just to get your feelings. So part of a necessary consent discussion, obviously, would be incidence or risk. And the figures in the literature are very broad. Appreciate in, in medical legal terms, we're, we're bound to state the published adequate figures but what's your you know your feeling having worked around this topic for so long we we regularly ask mhra if their statisticians can tell us if there is a greater risk with one type of implant or another and in the world literature we've seen varying rates uh, discussed as things stand from our last meeting and the next meeting is in about a six eight weeks time something like that statistically in the united kingdom we cannot say if you look at the numbers of implants in and the types of implants that have been used that one implant is statistically more likely to develop this than others we've seen it with every implant that's implanted in the united kingdom apart from a true smooth only implant at the moment and also andy question to the panel is how many women in the uk have a breast implant what percentage do you know next question would be what type of implant is related to what percentage of women that carry that specific type of implant and the silence is what we were faced in the netherlands as well and so we used breast cancer screening data combined with chest x-rays after showing that we could use chest x-rays to determine if a patient has a breast implant, we found out that the prevalence of a breast implant was 3.4% of women in the Netherlands on average, a bit closer to the 4% between 20 and say 35. But so that if you want to calculate a risk, you need numerator and as well as denominator. And so this is the big problem with risk calculations. Look, can I say the reason that Ian and I were, were laughing then is not because this is a, uh, we're, we think this is funny, this is a really difficult problem and he and I have been discussing this together with the European potential study. It is fraught with problem about how we get that information and it would be an enormous study and hats off to the Dutch for brilliant study. Now, our populations are very similar, and so I quote that, you know, one in 30 women will have have a breast implant in, and people look horrified when I say that, but actually it may well be true. Ian, do you want to come in? Yeah, I think the spare comment. The other thing we could think we were thinking about is whether you could look at other databases, not just chest X-rays, Henny, but the, the radiology database itself, like CTs or MRIs. So it was a very neat study you had, actually. Um, another nice way of also using other information to get information about another condition. It's, it's very difficult to estimate, but I think the figures have come out at about between 3 and 5%, which is much higher than people would imagine. If you ask general population, what is the percentage of people that have breast implants? I don't think they come up with that number. I was in uh, Buenos Aires, and I usually ask the same question wherever I go, and it's at 20 to 30%. And <laughs> to, to me, it sounds a bit high, but in South America, it's a different continent with lots of... Uh, 
different issues, of course. But it's really interesting when you look at an implant that's used so often and then relate that to how difficult it is to get grants to do research into this this disease. And, and I'm sure all of you have, are familiar with that. It's sort of, uh, you know, well, they asked for it, these women, sort of that atmosphere, which is totally unfair. We need to get to the bottom of this as soon as possible. But um, yeah, thanks. Thanks for your wonderful guideline, at least. Would anyone venture a snappy line that can be used by trainees when they're doing their mock consent in an exam? You know, one, one woman in a... Well, obviously, it's not a football crowd at the moment. There are no football crowds, but, uh, you know, we use various terms like that to try and transfer risk into more meaningful figures for patients. You, you know, risk of being hit by a bus, risk of um, one person in a concert. You know, are there any ballpark figures that you think are justifiable? It is very difficult. You know, one in 17,000 is, is probably the size of my hometown, which no one's ever heard of. Um, and it's very difficult to put that in, in into any sort of context that people can understand, unless you can, you know, to, to that age group, it may be the number of people in an Ariana Grande concert, for example. It, you know, one of those people will develop it. But I think what most of us have been saying within the group is that the risk of developing breast cancer in the United Kingdom is one in eight at the moment. The risk of developing BILCL is one in, as far as we know at the moment, between one in 20,000, one in 17,000. And just giving people that difference, one eight versus 17,000, every sort of everybody gets it when it when you've got that sort of difference to try and put things into perspective. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andy. Yeah, again, really interesting discussion and amazing focus on the MDT aspect of investigating and managing this complex condition. And it's interesting to see how much more we're discovering about it to really inform these guidelines. It's been a fascinating discussion. I'll, I'll open the floor in a second to any last comments, but I'd like just to hand over to Professor Turner first, just to discuss a quick discussion about a study that's ongoing in the realms of BIALCL. Yeah, thanks very much. I just wanted to plug the study that's going on in my lab. So um, I have a research lab at, at Cambridge University and, and we've been working on anaplastic large cell lymphoma for a good couple of decades now and, and of course more luckily breast implant ALCL. Um, if you come across any cases, we would be really very grateful of tumor tissue, seroma material, and also the explanted implants. We're doing chemistry on the explanted implants to look at the particular chemical moiety on the surface of those implants that we think might be driving this particular cancer. And we're also looking at the genetics that underlie it and the cell of origin to try and get a deeper insight into what's driving tumour growth in this case. Uh, so if anybody has any cases that come up, old cases that you've had, we can work with archival material as well. Please get in touch. There are more details on the CIUK website as well. Uh, and we have patient consent forms, patient information sheets, everything you might need. So please do get in touch. But that's it. That's just my little plug there for the study. Lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's been an absolutely great discussion. We've heard from everyone and learned, again, from the NDT perspective, how important it is to have this involvement from the whole group. So I think that's personified in this journal club, which is great as well. I'd urge everyone to read the article in detail, and Amit's summary was really, really useful. And this will be available as a podcast afterwards for everyone to be delving into the intricacies 
in a bit more detail, but I'll just bring in Nigel one second for a comment before we hand over to Philip. Timmy, just a very quick comment. The article is open access, so it is open to everybody. You don't have to subscribe to JPRAS to get it. Uh, one more comment for people that are interested. There's usually an annual online meeting, and it's also searchable on YouTube, which is only on via ALCL. So it's the world meeting on via ALCL. Last year it was in the US, and next year will be in Rome again, I think. Lovely. And did you have anything to say? No, just much as any was saying at the start, it's a fantastic piece of work. We're honoured to have it coming through JPRAS, as I often end up in these journal clubs. Just feel kind of grovelingly inferior to you for doing such great work. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. I can see everyone smiling there, but it really is a great guideline and really helpful, especially as Andy's mentioned from a trainee perspective, to have that guidance on how to manage these cases that we may see in the clinic every now and then, but also looking to develop practice in the future as well. So just before we end the journal club this evening, I'd like to hand over to Mr. Turton to develop the discussion in a little bit of an alternative angle, but just to tell us about an article that's impressed on you during your clinical practice to date and, and your research and one that you recommend to our trainees to read and bear in mind for their future practice. Thank you. Well, actually, the article that most influenced my clinical practice to date related to auxiliary surgery. When I took up my consultant post in 2004, patients with operable breast cancer routinely had all of their auxiliary nodes removed following the century-old radical surgical practice of a level three auxiliary node clearance. But for those node-negative patients, we had the perverse situation where we would congratulate the patient that we'd demonstrated their auxiliary was clear, but we knew that they had essentially undergone an unnecessary operation. In the long run, one in five would eventually be referred to um, the lymphedema team for management of their swollen arm. Prior to my take on my post at the end of the 1990s, the sentinel node procedure was starting to be practiced in the USA and it was beginning to be picked up in Europe, but it had really not been picked up by UK surgeons. There was a lack of robust evidence for this procedure and this really created a barrier to its adoption. And then in 1999, Robert Mansell, who was professor of surgery at Cardiff University, led the UK Almanac trial. And this was a really pivotal, randomized controlled trial of over a thousand patients to evaluate the dual tracer sentinel lymph node biopsy technique versus the conventional auxiliary node clearance. And the study showed that a full nodal clearance was unnecessary if the sentinel node was cancer-free. And the sentinel lymph node procedure led to an almost complete absence in arm morbidity. Lymphedema disappeared and all of the usual shoulder dysfunction that we used to see finished. We, of course, had a, a very substantial cost saving because the length of patient stay, stay was reduced. And the title of the publication is Randomized Multicenter Trial of Sentinel Lymph Node Biopsy Versus Standard Auxiliary Treatment in Operable Breast Cancer. And it was the Almanac trial published by Robert Mansell in JNCI in 2006. Lovely. Thank you very much. Yeah, that's really a game changer in practice. And that's the sort of article that we look for to, to kind of base our practice on. So thank you so much. And obviously, the practice has developed so much since then as well. And yeah, we, we very rarely do clearances as trainees nowadays, both for breast cancer and skin cancer. The indications have changed a lot. So thank you so much for that. 
I think that's been a, that's a, a great discussion, a really great journal club on these really important guidelines. And as Mr. Mercer said, they are open access. So everyone can access them and use them to guide your clinical practice and make sure that we follow them going forward. So thank you so much to everyone for taking part in preparing the guidelines and writing them. And also thank you so much for your discussion this evening. I thank you all. Together, I think it's been a great MDT approach to this guideline, which epitomizes the approach that you've recommended in the guidelines. And so I thank you all for your time and energy behind the scenes, especially as Mr. Mercer said, you're meeting again in a couple of weeks to discuss further developments and that work is ongoing. So we really thank you for that. And we put it into our practice as a reflection of that. So thank you, everyone. And thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be in touch with regards to next month's JPRIZE Journal Club. But for now, I'd urge you all to read these guidelines and follow them as closely as possible. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you for listening to this month's JPRIZE Journal Club. Please send your thoughts and further questions to us on social media using the hashtag JPRIZE Journal Club. The article discussed today is freely available at jprizesurge.com with special thanks to the JPRIZE editorial team and our guest author for making this possible. You can also find out more about Plaster and Icoplast on social media and our websites, which are plaster.org and icoplast.org. We look forward to hearing from you and see you next month for another episode of JPRIZE Journal Club.